Welcome to the second of six-part series um, hosted by <coughs> La Trobe Asia. And on this occasion, because the topic is the Philippines, co-hosted by the Philippines Australia Study Centre. Welcome especially to some honoured guests. I'd like to name four in particular uh, as this is being recorded. It should be noted that they're here with us. Uh, we're very honoured to have the Philippine Consul General for Victoria, um, Felix Pintoto, here today and Neil Grahams, the Secretary for the Asia-Philippines Business Council. And I'm very pleased to see two stalwarts of La Trobe University who've just, sadly for Philippines Australia Study Centre, have just retired. Charles Mott, a retired diplomat and uh, for many years uh, Deputy Director of the <coughs> Philippines Australia Study Centre and Cliff Picton, who uh, was not only the Ombudsman for La Trobe, but for is still continuing his work in the Philippines um, Social Work Support for Families International. Uh, what's the name of the organisation again? Community and Family Services International. Thank you. Uh, and a very important connection for us. And a fifth name I'd like to mention because it's an event coming up next year, um, the Casamain State Festival. The director here, Martin Payton, is bringing over 20 Filipino artists and will be the feature nation for the Casamain State Festival, which is the biggest regional festival in Australia. And La Trobe University is a sponsor and I'm going to be involved with a number of ancillary public events. So keep posted about that and we'll advertise it through La Trobe Asia as well. On to today's event, we're all very, very excited to discuss um, this particular topic because the new president of the Philippines, um, by definition, is exciting. And uh, <laughs> I, for one, am looking forward to the day that he hops on his uh, Made in China jet ski to go to the Scarborough Shoal. And the question will be, will it be privately sponsored or sponsored by the government? Um, he is a man who is a doer uh, with a reputation for having um, led uh, in his local city and in Mindanao uh, for many years. And he's the first president, I understand, who is from the South uh, to be elected. And a popular election it was too. So we're right at the very beginning of a new, a new potentially interesting era for the Philippines. And so it's my pleasure to introduce you the three speakers today. And I've been instructed that they are to have 12 minutes only each. Uh, and thereupon leaving plenty of time and space for us to have a hearty debate and to ask questions of our um, speakers. First up we have um, our guest speaker from the University of Canberra is Dr. Nicole Curato, who is, and I may read this out because it's very impressive, is the Discovery Early Career Research Award Fellow at the Centre for Deliberate, Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance at the University of Canberra. I hope it has an acronym, it's very long. Well, no, it doesn't. <laughs> uh, her work examines the character of democracy in states of emergency, paying particular attention in the ways in which post-disaster contexts constrain or facilitate deliberative politics. She first joined the centre as a postdoctoral research fellow at the Australian National University in 2011, when she worked on an ARC linkage project on the Australian Citizens Parliament with Professor Dryzek and um, Professor Niemeyer. Before moving to Australia, Nicole completed her degrees in sociology at the University of the Philippines, University of Manchester and University of Birmingham, respectively. She's a visiting scholar in the Department of Government at Uppsala University, Development Studies Program at the Ateneo de Manila University and the Asian Centre of the University of the Philippines. Ateneo de Manila University and the University of the Philippines are two partners of La Trobe University and uh, very strong partners. 
So it's a pleasure to introduce you to Nicole. We then have Mr. Romero Lopez as our second speaker. And he has been a trial lawyer for more than seven years in the Philippines. His practice covers international trade and foreign investments, commercial contracts, commercial dispute resolution, including dealing with cases involving bank fraud and illegal corporate practices. You would get a very fine career here in Australia if you had those areas. <laughs> he has also previously taught private international law and was a legal consultant on commercial aspects of agrarian reform. He's the president of the Philippine-Australian Studies Council, FASCO, and in that capacity I'm very grateful for the hard work that you've done in cooperation with, uh, in collaboration with the Philippines-Australia Studies Centre. Currently Lem is doing his PhD at the Melbourne Law School and is writing a thesis on approaches of Asian courts of choice on forum clauses in international commercial contracts. For those of you at La Trobe University, um, our next speaker doesn't need much introduction. Nick Bisley is not only a professor of politics and international relations, but is the director of the inaugural director of La Trobe Asia. So welcome to all the three speakers. First up. Well, in 2.5 seconds, you have 12 minutes. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Trevor. I will definitely st stick to my time. So thank you for the invitation, and it's such an honor to be part of uh, the Little Crobe Asia series. So my discussion today aims to provide a snapshot of some preliminary thoughts that I have observing the Duterte administration, not only for the past 15 days, but also the campaign that led to his landslide victory last May. And a couple of questions have puzzled me as far as characterizing his leadership style is concerned. I wonder, is he a tyrannical leader with little respect to due process? Or is he a democratic visionary who has the political capital to build a broad coalition with leftists, environmentalists, business people, and local elites? Is he a socialist committed um, to end unfair labor practices and redistribution of land to farmers? Or just another tough-talking leader who could do little to confront the vagaries of global capital? Is he an agent of change, as he claims, or a mere continuation of broader patterns of elite democracy in the Philippines? These, for now, for me, are open questions as we continue to observe the conduct of the Duterte administration. And in my presentation, I propose that we revisit the concept of populism to make sense of the complex character of Duterte's political power, as well as the kind of society that gives rise to such kind of politics. The concept of populism may not directly answer the questions I have raised, but I argue it may be able to give clarity on the narrative arc that lends coherence to the, to the story of the Duterte presidency. Of course, needless to say, populism is not new to the Philippines. Former President Estrada on the left and former Vice President and once presidential frontrunner Jejomar Binay on the right were often compared to Thailand's Taksin Shinawat, whose anti-elite rhetoric and pro-poor programs were tainted with corruption scandals. So the concept of populism and the populist leader is not particularly new to the Philippines. But what's particularly new here is Duterte's brand of populism, which is often compared to the United States' as Donald Trump. This comparison has some limited, albeit has some, albeit limited basis, particularly when populism is understood not as an ideology, but as a political style. So what do I mean by defining populism as a political style? And here I draw on Ben Moffitt's work, which defines populism as a repertoire of political performance. 
To define populism as um, performance, however, is not to dismiss it as superficial or purely aesthetic. Instead, appreciating populism as a political style foregrounds the reality that contemporary societies now live in what we call the age of communicative abundance. It is an era where the issue is no longer the lack of information, but the deficit of attention among audiences saturated with information. So in the context of communicative abundance, politics has become predominantly stylized, such that its theatrical features have become central in acting or enacting politics. And this, I reckon, is the reason why we see a global wave of populist leaders, whether it's from the political left or political right. Um, substantively, Duterte and Trump's politics are very different, ideologically, but rhetorically, as a political style, that is where the parallelism can have some similarities. So performance, whether it is in broadcast or digital media, have become crucial not only for politicians' messages to gain traction, but also in allowing people to imagine the nation. Think of the drama in the very beginning of Duterte's entry in the political mainstream. Filing his candidate candidacy for presidency was called Duterte Serie in the Philippines, a reference to the teleserie or the telenovela because of its dramatic character. The will he, will he not drama was uh, will, the will he, will he not run for president drama was integral to the creation of a public that clamored for the president to run through massive gatherings, campaigns, and fundraising appeals conducted nationwide. So for those who didn't really follow the elections, Duterte was the last to file his candidacy for president. It was after a long dramatic series of events which, made pe uh, which kept people guessing, will he run or will he not run? And the argument here is that dramatic series of teleseria, telenovela-like events is very much part of the performance. In fact, if one were to observe Duterte's political rally, it would be very difficult not to affirm what sociologists describe a Duterte rally as a sensual experience. A historian described his rally as a semiotic overdrive for the symbolisms involved in the spectacle he puts together. He usually kisses the flag of the Philippines after every speech. Um, while some would dismiss this as just drama, I argue that this is critical in forming the public that underpins the support for Duterte's agenda. There's a lot more to say here, but let me leave that thought for a while. Um, for now, the idea I would like to underscore is the theatrical underpinnings of Duterte's political style. This may not be unique to him, but it has definitely been central to his rise to power. So what are the characteristics of the populist style and how can this help us make sense of the Duterte administration? A core feature of populism is the, sorry, let me go back to the first. A core feature of contemporary populism is the performance of a crisis. And populism gets its impetus from the perception of an impending breakdown, real or imagined, which requires strong leadership to save the people from the dangerous other. Um, I'm doing the air quotes for the dangerous other. While Aquino, the previous president, framed the people against the corrupt, so that has been the framing of the people versus the other in the past administration, Duterte framed the political crisis as one between the good people versus the criminals, the drug lords. Duterte's framing of illegal drugs as a major issue gained traction. During the campaign, this is evidenced by a poll where low pay and illegal drugs are among the top issues voters want their preferred presidential candidates to solve. This is very different compared to the polls prior to the electoral race. When you ask Filipinos what their top concerns are, according to the survey, it's usually about inflation, jobs, and um, health. But when Duterte entered the picture, it suddenly became peace and order and drugs. 
So, once Duterte assumed power, his supporters continued to perform the crisis. Dozens of criminals have been killed, either through summary execution or shooting in a police encounter, justified under Duterte's war against drugs. Hours after Duterte's oath-taking last June, hundreds of drug users were reported to have surrendered to local police all over the country. In terms of legislation, perhaps it's not accidental that House Bill No. 1 seeks to reinstate death penalty for heinous crimes. During Duterte's campaign, he said he wanted to restore death penalty by hanging. And the last time that happened, if I'm not mistaken, was during the American colonial period for treason. Um, lowering the age of criminal liability to nine years old is also considered a top legislative agenda. And I think Lem will talk about this um, a bit more. So what do these developments tell us? From the perspective of populism, the performance of crisis is essential to justify swift action, the continued process of othering, in this case criminals, and the consensus in the public sphere that legitimizes such crisis. So my argument here, it's not just Duterte that brings this to the mainstream, but it's underpinned by a popular consensus in the public sphere. Um, for those who are curious about this, I invite you to carefully read the comment sections of op-ed pieces criticizing Duterte's drug war. <laughs> this gives a flavor of the public reasoning that supports this performance of crisis. Um, this is not for the faint-hearted, though. And one of my observations and reflections as I've written some pieces critical of Duterte's methods is the argument on human rights is no longer enough. To say this is against human rights is no longer persuasive. We kind of have to make an argument why human rights matters, because apparently for some people, uh, human rights are not universal. Okay, so so far I've mentioned two qualities of the populist style, the performance of the crisis and the distinction of the people versus the dangerous other. But there's one characteristic that is quite unique to contemporary populists, and that is bad manners. The coarsening of political discourse, as Moffitt points out, is integral to the populist style, for invoking the discourse of crisis requires a different political vocabulary. So gravitas, seriousness, sensitivity to others' views, are now taken over by frankness and dramatized language. In Duterte's case, his use of gutter language lends credibility to his claims and renders the visceral rejection of the status quo visible by accurately giving voice um, to people's frustrations. After winning the elections, um, Duterte promised a metamorphosis, and he committed to the behavior, and I quote, more in keeping with the dignity of the office. And he delivered on this promise on the day of his inauguration. Um, the nocturnal president arrived on time um, in the Malacanang Palace um, wearing his silk barong. Um, people were speculating whether he will respect the, the process of the inauguration. Um, he read a short yet powerful speech of a teleprompter, which I think is the first time he ever read a speech in a teleprompter. No expletive was heard in that entire process. And as a lawyer and a former prosecutor, prosecutor, Duterte claimed he understood the limits of presidential power. So he articulated that on day one. Yet, the much-vaunted metamorphosis seemed to apply only to the most formal of functions. After his inauguration, the president slipped back into his everyday wardrobe of striped polo shirt and comfortable trousers, cracking jokes about the profitability of funeral parlors under his administration. He maintained the same tough-talking demeanor while de delivering an impromptu speech in the turnover ceremony of the Philippine National Police and Armed Forces of the Philippines, warning drug lords that there is a time to rest and a time to die. So this is now what we call Duterte chic. So it's your formal barong with denim jeans. Um, so this is uh, the, the metamorphosis. So 
if I were to summarize uh, the conduct of Duterte in his first week as president, I would argue that it's a negotiation between what is appropriate and what is authentic. So only time will tell how long this negotiation between appropriateness and authenticity can last, although this for now I think is a productive tension that the president can maintain. After all, it is his authenticity that made him popular to constituencies, frustrated with a slow-moving justice system, and enticed with a lead, uh, by a leader with a track record of delivering campaign promises, even if that involves the use of threats and humiliation. So finally, what do these observations tell us about the Philippine society under the Duterte presidency? So I'd like to conclude on two final points. First, Duterte's populism has already transformed the tenor of the political conversation. He has broadened the scope of what can and what cannot be said during an electoral race. So beyond the swear words, for me, are meaningful transgressions in the conservative vocabulary of Philippine politics. From screaming Alu Akbar in the final campaign rally to foreground his Maranao identity, to proudly saying that he is a socialist, Duterte has brought to the political mainstream discourses that have been in the margins of the political conversation for decades. There have also been indications on how the center of power has significantly shifted away from Manila. Um, as the first president of the Philippines for Mindanao, it is not insignificant that all eyes are on Davao City a, a month after the elections. Duterte refused to travel to Manila even for his proclamation and instead formed his cabinet and held press conferences in what journalists now call Malacanang or the Presidential Palace of the South. Um, finally, the next six years will be a democratic experiment for the Philippines. I personally find it troubling that a lot of people are shot dead. Um, there are various head counts or body counts, um, but the safe estimate is hundreds are now dead 15 days since he took office. I find it comforting, however, that Duterte was quick to make reforms that make government work from the for the people, from enhancing the government's frontline services to making people-centered growth a cornerstone of, of the economic agenda. But finally, where does critique stand here? What is the role of critique in dissent in the context of this political experiment? And here I argue that it's not only important to keep an eye on Duterte, but on the character of the opposition and the civil society during the rest of Duterte's term. The newly elected Congress was quick to form a supermajority to support Duterte. It will be a big test for how this branch that is supposed to check the president um, to check how the executive behaves once thornier issues of charter change, federalism, and death penalty are put on the table. And what about the public sphere? What is the character of the public sphere that will emerge in the Duterte administration? He recently received a trust rating that is considered excellent, comparable to what the president six years ago had. So what kind of the public sphere, dissent, and contestation will occur in this context? So I argue, finally, that a lot is hinged on finding the right balance for populism to be a force for democratic inclusion without lapsing into the legitimization of its anti-democratic tendencies. I argue that the civil society should find new ways of engaging in critique and dissent because we have to catch up with Duterte's populism. In closing, I think we, and by we, I mean observers, citizens, critics, need more political imagination, creativity, and most of all, intellectual humility to understand and act within the new political environment in which we, in which we live. I'll end my comments there. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, it's an honor to, to speak about uh, the Duterte administration. It's a, it's a very interesting phase in 
in the field of law actually right now in the Philippines, uh, mainly because the, the current administration challenges a lot of uh, notions about how we understand the rule of law in the Philippines right now. So what I want to achieve this afternoon is to discuss about his staunch fight against illegal drugs, which uh, given rise to, to comments like, we are creating a nation without judges, law, and reason. So what is my goal this afternoon is to provide you the legal landscape of where this fight against uh, illegal drugs is operating. And to achieve that, I want to answer the following questions. Uh, what is the Duterte administration allowed to do under Philippine law to achieve his agenda? What are the limitations imposed by, to him by the law? What protections are given to the Filipino people? And what are the other relevant legal issues that may arise and what should be done? Okay. So let me begin my discussion with what is the power of the president under the Philippine Constitution? The, the, power of the, pre the, the, pres the concept of the presidential power in the Philippine Constitution actually is even more powerful than the power granted to the president of the United States. Because the, because the presidential power under the Constitution was not patterned under, although it's, it, the Constitution was patterned under the United States Constitution, but the concept actually that was adopted was the, the power of the governor general during the American period. So, it, the, so the power granted to him was more powerful and most, more extensive than the power granted to the President of the United States. And that is reflected until now in the 1987 Constitution. And there have been several cases articulating this, uh, this presidential power, this executive power. And basically, the, pow the power of the President is to enforce and administer the laws of the land. So without any qualification. So as long as it's there, Congress has passed the law, he has the obligation to, to implement the law, administer and carry out the laws into practical operation. So, so the determination of how he will operate that will, is based on his, his discretion. And also based on, unless there is a standard is provided by the law itself. So this includes the implementation of the Comprehensive Dangerous Drugs Act of 2002, which is the basis of why he is going after the, the drug dealers. So what are the unlawful acts under this, uh, under this law, which is the Republic Act 9165? So I have here listed the different acts that he is supposed to suppress. If you notice, it's very, very extensive. So like importation, sale, trading, administration, dispensation, maintenance of a drug den, manufacture, uh, diversion of, of imported um, chemicals for the manufacture of dangerous drugs. So it's, it's one of the most comprehensive laws actually passed in early 2000 because the Congress has the impression that, that we really need to fight hard the problem of dangerous drugs in the Philippines. So these are the laws that he is supposed to, the, the, the acts that he is supposed to suppress. Okay. So under the law, who is tasked to, to implement and go after these uh, violators of the Comprehensive Dangerous Drugs Act? So the primary agency tasked under the law is the Philippine Drug Enforcement Agency or PDEA. So it has, what are its powers? It has the powers to arrest and apprehend as well as search all violators and seize all or confiscate the effects 
or proceeds of the crimes as provided by law and take custody thereof. And for this purpose, the prosecutors and enforcement agents are authorized to possess firearms in accordance with existing laws. So they have created a different unit just to enforce the law. However, in 2009, the Supreme Court, in a decision, articulated that the, the Philippine National Police did not lose its ability to implement the law itself. And so in that case, the Philippine National Police was declared to possess authority to conduct anti-illegal drugs operations, provided that the case shall eventually be transferred to the PDEA. So we have now two main uh, agencies that are going after uh, drug dealers and uh, users of illegal drugs. And aside from that, they also have, of course, they, they could coordinate with other agencies in the government at the National Bureau of Investigation. Because there's a, there's a study that tells that a lot of sale of drugs are involved, are done through the internet. So there's a cybercrime uh, law that was passed and among the, and the, the agency that was tasked to, to go after these violators of the cyber laws is the, the National Bureau of Investigation. So all, the, the, all these uh, agencies could, could coordinate and go after these drug dealers. But who else can implement the, the provisions of the law? Of course, uh, the, the president being the commander-in-chief can also ask the military actually to suppress uh, lawless violence. So for example, if the drugs problem has been so, um, so rampant that it can no longer be contained by the, by, by the police force and, the, and PDEA, he could call the, the military and join him to go after these uh, violators of the Comprehensive Dangerous Drugs Act. So how is arrest done according to the laws of the Philippines? This is provided by the rules of court. So an arrest is made by an actual restraint of a person to be arrested or by his submission to the custody of the person making the arrest. Take note, the next sentence, no violence or unnecessary force shall be used in making an arrest. There's no killing there. No mention of like shoot if he, he actually, it actually states that it has to be no violence and unnecessary force to be implemented. The person arrested shall not be subject to a greater restraint than is necessary for the, his detention. And violation of this, uh, this uh, uh, provision about arrest would also warrant uh, criminal liability on the, on, on the, in the case of the, the police enforcers. So arrest is always made pursuant to a warrant of arrest issued by a judge. Only the judge can issue a warrant of arrest. Upon finding of, there's a proceeding that is uh, done upon finding of a probable cause. And it takes, uh, it has to apply and then the, as, uh, the judge will appreciate the, 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 the evidence that is presented and then a warrant of arrest is issued. Unless it falls under the circumstances where a warrantless arrest can be made. So what are these circumstances? There are only three circumstances given under the rules of court. One, when in his presence, the person to be arrested has committed or is actually committing or is attempting to commit an offense. For example, the, the person is, has, is seen like during the by-bus cooperation selling drugs. So the, 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 the police officer can arrest that person. Number two, when an offense has just been committed and he has probable cause 
to believe based on personal knowledge of facts or circumstances that the person to be arrested has committed it. And third, when the person to be arrested is a prisoner and has escaped from, from detention. Take note that warrantless arrest can be done by a peace officer or a private person. So if a, like if a private person wants to arrest a person, the, the conditions that he has to comply will, are, are this. So, so any, anyone actually in the Philippines could arrest a person provided they comply with all of these requirements. So the, I got this uh, flowchart from the manual of, of the Anti-Illegal Drugs Task Force of the Philippine National Police. They actually have a very elaborate steps. It's a very 200 plus manual on how to implement uh, bypass operations. And they, like, in, 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 at the very start of the manual, they are obligated to follow faithfully the, the, the steps written in it. So it's very elaborate, but there's a big question if they actually are following this, uh, this, this flow. So another thing that they could do is to search and seize the, the, the illegal drugs if they found one. So how is this done? First, they have to get a search warrant. So a search warrant is an order, again, issued by the judge. Second, um, how is this done? Uh, may be issued for the search and seizure of personal property, subject of the offense, stolen or embezzled goods, and used to be used as a means of committing an offense. And then, no search of a house, room, or any other premise shall be made except in the presence of a lawful occupant. So there's even a requirement that has to be done in the presence of, in the, presence of the, the lawful occupant. And if you refuse admission, then it could break open the, the property. Oops. So there's also a flowchart here that they have to follow. So what are the protections? Basically, the protections are there in the Bill of Rights in the Philippines. And there are also laws that would implement this one. But primary, primarily, it, it says that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So it centers on the due process requirement of the law. And any violation of that would mean you violate this, uh, this constitutional guarantee. So there, there's no torture. And in all criminal prosecutors, the, 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 the accused shall be presumed innocent until proven uh, guilty. So how is the fight against drugs done right now? So this is a, a news a, a press release on, given yesterday. And the palace is very proud that they have apprehended 60,000 drug dependents already. Have, and they, have surrendered, sorry, have surrendered to the, to the government. And in that press release, they emphasize that the government is against any form of extrajudicial killings. We do not condone these acts. Government is here to save our people from the drug menace and punish the offenders, including big time ones. The PNP continues to investigate situation involving vigilante killings and operational aspects where deaths are, report, are reported. So this is the kill list. 136 right now have been killed. Uh, 85 in police operations and 51 by unidentified uh, hitmen. This is from Inquirer, Philippine Daily Inquirer. So alarm bells, of course, are ringing. So, so the question is, despite of, of all of this happening, how do we scrutinize the government? Usually the government will, will as, as they have said, 
several times. We we could there's a presumption of regularity in the operations of all of these uh, killings, for example, done. But can they hide in that? There is a there is a case in 2008 uh, issue, uh, given by the, the by the Supreme Court, also on bypass operations, and it emphasized that the presumption of regularity cannot cannot stand when when the law enforcement involved deviated from the standard conduct of official duty. So I'll just yeah. So there's no presumption unless they have they could show that they have faithfully complied with their manual of operations. So if they cannot if they cannot show that they have they have complied with the manual operations, there is no presumption of regularities. So therefore they are liable to provide information how they have conducted all of these killings. So investigations should be done. The, the Senate could go after and for a legislative inquiry. And of course, cases can be filed by the victims of these uh, killings. So I think I'd, I'd like to end my presentation with that. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. All right, thanks Trevor. Um, Trevor asked me to talk today about um, the foreign policy side of, or the international policy side of um, the incoming presidency and to sort of look into the crystal ball and imagine where Duterte might take the Philippines. Um, unlike most academics, I'm quite happy to um, prognosticate <coughs> about the future. Uh, or at least I, I, tr I try to be. So I'm, I'm going to look a little bit in, um, into the future. But I think when people look at Duterte and think about what, you know, what is this guy going to mean for the region, there, there tends to be in a lot of the commentary a tendency to kind of divide between, on the one hand, the kind of dirty Harry, you know, Duterte Harry side, that here is this kind of irresponsible guy who's going to say all sorts of crazy nationalist things, act in a very um, erratic manner, and could, you know, given the flashpoints in the South China Sea, you know, tip the region into, or tip the Philippines into conflict, and because of the Philippines' relationship to the United States, tip the region into conflict. So that's, that's at one end of the, the extreme. And the other end of the extreme is, Here's this unpredictable guy um, who, in the same breath, is saying he's got a jet ski, going to fly, going to fly. Duterte could take a jet ski and fly out to Scarborough Shoal. Um, in the same breath as it, the, the, immediately after he said that, he'll say he's quite happy to cut a bilateral deal with China and cuddle up uh, to Beijing in a very pragmatic way. And so there's a, you know, is this guy going to be deeply, deeply domestically focused, or is he going to be unpredictable, or where is he going to go? Um, and the tendency then is to say, we don't know, because he spent 22 years in, as mayor of Davao and has no experience, he has no form, we don't know who's advising him, all that sort of stuff. And, and the diplomats in the room will know that's the first thing you do is you see who's advising this person, what's the network of ideas around them, what's, what's forming that, we don't, and there's this sort of opacity around Duterte. Well, I actually think there's, there's quite a bit actually to go on with, with um, Duterte is to get a sense of what his priorities might be. And I think um, there are some reasonably clear signals that have been sent out on the, which can form the basis of some judgment and some um, guessing about where he's going to go. And I would emphasize it, it is guessing. But I think that the most important um, factor, sorry, the most important thing for Duterte is domestic politics. And I think his foreign policy will be defined by the, the predominance of domestic priorities. And 
I don't just mean he's going to be kind of navel gazing. What I mean is, you know, most countries, particularly you know, smaller, well, m most countries, particularly in the developing world, are, are very inward, inwardly focused. They're concerned with questions of governance and stability and growth and, and of whatever um, direction they choose to, to, to take things down. Um, but equally, I think s smaller countries or less powerful countries are heavily influenced by events beyond their borders. And so that what path they choose to take can be colored by a sort of a very strongly realpolitiki view. There's a world out there, we have to respond to it. We, we have to draw a line between what's going on out there and what's going on at home. Uh, then there's a tendency to, or, or a, an inclination to drive your foreign policy in a sort of sophisticated way where you try to trade off domestic priorities, international balance of power considerations and various other obligations that you've got. And I think certainly if you looked at um, the way the Aquino government ran its foreign policies, it was very much that sort of interplay of great power politics and a sort of sense that Sino-American rivalry provided some useful opportunities for the Philippines to, to develop economically and to develop militarily. Uh, I don't think, I, I think Duterte is going to not follow that line at all. I think he's going to be much more driven by an international policy that is most conducive to his domestic priorities. And we've heard laid out by two people who know it a lot better than I do what those priorities are, but they seem to me um, to be particularly around the sort of infrastructure development and the economic program um, around that. Uh, secondly, and really importantly, uh, is around the insurgencies in the South. So if you think about how he's going to use the Philippines' relatively scarce military resources, they're not going to be around taking on China or pushing into the South China Sea or trying to defend Philippines' claims in the South China Sea. The balance of focus will be on the insurgencies in the South and then on political reform, which we'll probably touch on and the questions of whether there's going to be a, a sort of um, transformation of the, the constitutional settings in um, the Philippines. So uh, I think when he's faced with foreign policy issues, whether they're crises or whether they're longer run issues, the balance of, I think the balance of factors will be how do these international developments affect those domestic priorities? And if they can be supportive of a desire to, for example, to get more inward investment or to get support for infrastructure, then that's the path that, um, that that's the, the, the consideration that will prevail. I think in many respects, what we see in uh, Duterte is um, a you know, domestically focused populist um, politician, anti-elitist, very much the kind of zeitgeist at the moment. Um, but he, we have a Southeast Asian parallel, actually a very strong parallel in um, President Jokowi. Uh, so President Jokowi Dodo came into office, you know, you wouldn't want to push the parallels too much, but very much an outsider, an anti-elitist, very popular and popular for a kind of can-do anti-elitist, sort of not socialist, but kind of potentially crypto-socialist, if you like, redistribute, vague terms about redistribution, nothing, not, nothing strongly programmatic. Uh, and if you look at the way Jokowi has run Indonesian foreign policy, it has been very similarly, it, sorry, it has been oriented by factors that I think are, are the kind that I've outlined. That's to say a, a huge priority on the domestic and domestic um, issues and international policy is driven by and shaped by that and any reactions are f any reactions to crises are, are profoundly shaped by those domestic priorities. So in my remaining few minutes I just want to say a few things about th what I think are the three big issues facing um, any Philippines government in its foreign policy. One is relations with ASEAN, second is relations with the major powers and I'll bracket those with just 
for the sake of time, as the US and Japan, and then third, the South China Sea issue and our friends in Beijing. Can't not talk about the South China Sea given this week. Uh, so just a, a few minutes briefly on each and then we'll have hopefully plenty of time for Q&A. Uh, ASEAN, as you will all be aware, is an organisation that looms very large in the minds of Southeast Asian politicians tasked with foreign policy. Uh, it's the most important regional organisation in Southeast Asia by, uh, um, by a, lo a long, long way. Uh, but there are two really important aspects about ASEAN that I think will be, will face some challenge with Duterte. One is the notion of ASEAN centrality. So ASEAN sees uh, itself as central to the region, obviously, but more importantly, and it's often overlooked by external parties, that probably ASEAN's most important facet is that ASEAN is the central piece of its members' foreign policy. So they think first, when they're thinking foreign policy, they think first ASEAN and second, the rest of the world. Um, and I think that domestic focus that I, um, I, I believe will be central to Duterte's uh, foreign policy will dilute that ASEAN centrality. And that like Jokowi, the approach to ASEAN will be very much pick and choose uh, and use ASEAN and approach ASEAN as and when it will advance that domestic agenda and not as a sort of thou shalt support ASEAN first and then your domestic priorities shall follow. Um, and, th and this is exactly what Jokowi has done, much to the frustration of, of the ASEAN secretariat that happens to be based in um, Jakarta. Uh, the second important aspect of ASEAN is of course the principle of solidarity. So ASEAN states have a great deal of sense of solidarity amongst their peers. Uh, that has been uh, challenged in recent years on a number of fronts, most obviously by the South China Sea disputes in which um, five members, so four members of ASEAN are disputants with overlapping claims and that has made um, developing a common ASEAN position in relation to China very, very challenging. But again, I think that sense of we have a set of domestic problems that I need to solve from, and I think that point that, um, that Nicole made is that you know, the political persona of Duterte as a doer means that he has to be seen to be solving these problems. Um, means that, that, that there will not be, I think, the level of solidarity amongst ASEAN that, and that instinctive solidarity towards ASEAN peers that has been, uh, I think, the hallmark of government's past, particularly uh, under um, Arroyo and Fidel Ramos. Um, so ASEAN is gonna find life, I think, more challenging than it has been in the past. And I think particularly when you combine a Duterte presidency that's domestically prioritized with an Indonesian presidency that I think will be similarly inwardly focused. And I would emphasize, I'm not, being, not saying they're inwardly focused in a, the wars are up and all they care about is at home, but in that about those trade-offs that you have to make about where you spend your time and energy and what priorities you give and how sophisticated you are in the way you put forward those competing agendas. Um, ASEAN has got its two most populous countries um, being very, very much um, inwardly oriented. So let's then think about the major powers uh, with the United States and Japan. Uh, under the, his predis, under the, predis, the previous government of, uh, the, sorry, the previous Aquino government, the United States and the Philippines probably developed the closest relations they've had since um, the early 1990s with the closure of the military bases, but most, most obviously the Subic Bay. Um, and probably the high point of this came earlier in the year with the deal that was inked in which US forces would have access to five bases um, across the archipelago. Uh, and this was really about a few, I mean, about several things for the Aquino government. 
uh, part of which was that leveraging rivalry between the US to support uh, the Philippines' position in relation to China and also to get American and Japanese support for mili the military modernization program that the government was pursuing. I think that sense, as I alluded to earlier, I think that sense in which the government is going to sort of, the Philippines government is going to position itself in relation to the major powers to develop both strategic and economic advantage is not going to occur. I think instead the priority on, particularly on the security front, on the insurgencies in the south will mean that that interest in Japan and uh, the United States as a strategic partner will, will ebb away. And that's not to say I think Duterte is going to turn his back on the United States, far from it. I think given the, the, the constrained nature of the, in the, um, the Philippines armed forces, he has no choice but to remain closely aligned with the United States. But I think the terms of the deal will be, prior, will be shaped by this um, strong domestic priority. And I think that's also true of Japan. On the economic front, and, and that's an interesting point for Japan because it, Japan had seen under Abe in the Philippines a government that was probably after Australia the one that was most supportive of the security reforms that Abe was pursuing and particularly most supportive of acquiring Japanese defense materiel which is highly controversial in Japan that's to say the selling of Japanese defense kit abroad uh, I think you're, you're going to see a, a winding back of that so in Japan there's a sense that Duterte is, is a disappointing outcome if you like uh, and the other point, I, uh, the other parallel I'd see in, in Jokowi for Duterte is the way in which Jokowi has seen um, relations with the US and uh, Japan and others as essentially potential partners for inward economic investment, which he's happy well, not, uh, with, and competition between those for that inward investment is something that he has been keen to encourage. And I, my guess is that I think uh, Duterte will take um, that card, uh, will very much copy that particular page of the playbook. Uh, finally, let's turn to the South China Sea disputes. Um, as Trevor mentioned at the start, Duterte was famous for declaring he was going to jump on a jet ski, fly at Scarborough Shoal and plant the flag. I hope it was a really big flag. I mean, it probably need a really big jet ski. Um, it's a long ride. I mean, it's 200 nautical miles. I mean, it's close, but it ain't jet ski close. Anyway, um, so he said that. And then, as I mentioned at the start, he has also said, oh, he's very open to negotiation with, with um, the Chinese and open to bilateral negotiations. So for those of you who don't watch this stuff too closely, um, which is to your credit, uh, the, the, the Chinese preferred approach to managing the South China Sea disputes is a series of bilateral um, negotiations for obvious reasons, which it gives it disproportionate influence. And so this is not a multilateral dispute, this is a series of disputes we have with different countries. Uh, and so when Duterte stands up and says, we're interested in talking bilaterally with Beijing, that sends a very clear signal that we're not following the ASEAN line or the preferred American line. So what's he going to do? Um, my guess, I think, is that if he could have, he, he very much would have wished the arbitral tribunal decision would not have come down in his first fortnight in office because he has to make some hard choices very quickly and very publicly. And uh, the, the diplomats amongst you will know that anything that can restrains your, your choice and freedom of manoeuvre and the options that you've got um, is a, not a bad thing, but is you know, uncomfortable. So you've, you've got to make a, a, a choice. Uh, as far as I'm aware, he hasn't said anything at all about the reaction. He said prior to the decision coming down, this um, we will neither taunt nor flaunt, which seems to be completely not in keeping with the populist persona, but there you go, um, uh, the reaction. Um, and so far he hasn't. The uh, um, 
Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs, Perfecto. Yes, I thank you. I like his first name. Um, has issued a fairly terse, fairly straight, and has played a, in cricketing terms a very straight bat on the response. Um, there was some coverage in the New York Times, which was great this morning, saying, you know, the mood in the Philippines was like we've won a football match, and the government has come out and said, no, no, this is just a process, and deliberately trying to pour cold water on this. This is not a time for, for cheering, going, we, you know, Philippines 10, China 0. This is. So, the message, I think, coming out of, um, out, out of uh, Duterte's government is to say, you know, we, you know, we're in a difficult spot because on the one hand, here's a nationalist populist politician who can't sit there and say, fine, China, actually, let's cut a deal, let's go on with joint economic development and let's move on. Um, but he's also someone who very much wants Chinese development, wants Chinese investment and wants that relationship, China's sort of second or third most important economic partner, depending on how you price it. Um, he wants that, and as you would, um, given his, his position, he wants to significantly improve relationship with China. So how do you do it? And I think that what is really puzzling for me is what, what he needs to do is to reconcile his nationalism and his nationalist rhetoric with the sort of complex nuanced diplomacy that's needed to marry, marry that relationship. So these are things for which he is not famed. Um, it's to say nuance, sophistication, and complexity. Um, so what, what is he likely to do? I think the balance is, and remember, who will he have in his ear? He'll have Washington in his ear every single day, saying, make sure you follow our cues on this. And Washington's line's quite sophisticated on the South China Sea. Washington isn't going, Yabu snubs to you, Beijing. It's saying, international rule of law. It's not set, all the official American lines so far have not mentioned China at once. As I said, we welcome this decision, we encourage the international resolution of these, or the resolution of these disputes in accordance with international law. And so that, but behind the scenes, it's very much, we have a particular view. So he'll have Washington in his ear every day, pushing this line. And on the other hand, he will have Beijing sitting there saying, we would love to invest in you, infrastructure, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, anyone? This is, this has Philippines written all over it. Uh, so how does he do this? And I. You know, I think on the balance of probabilities is that there will be a, a, a fudge, but in the long run, I suspect his domestic priority instincts will pull him towards uh, Beijing's orbit. So that despite um, his bravado and his lack of any clear signals as to where his foreign policy priorities lie, I think Duterte is unlikely to be a highly destabilizing force in regional international politics. I think there's likely to be more continuity than change. Um, however, the subtle shifts will have consequences. ASEAN is probably going to be the biggest loser. The United States will miss Aquino's approach. Um, but China is unlikely to have in the presidential palace someone with whom it can do business with any degree of comfort. I think the biggest challenge Duterte will have is that he will want to focus the bulk of his efforts at home, but the world is unlikely to allow him this luxury. I'll stop there and plenty of time for, for questions. <laughs>